Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon, and uh, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here to the fifth and final uh, installment in the 2018-2019 uh, Faith and Life season. Am I on, by the way? Is my mic on? Can you hear me okay? All right, good. I always do like to ask at the outset of these, how many of you uh, have not been to a Faith and Life event before? Wonderful, excellent. Well, special welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming out on a rainy night. And for those of you who have been here for a long time, uh, welcome to you as well. As I mentioned, this is the 16th season of these events. Um, if you followed us for a long time, from the beginning of the, the series, what we've tried to do is invite um, people who self-identify as Christians, typically not theologians or pastors, but lay people. So these are authors, they're doctors, they're politicians, they're bloggers had a few athletes, uh, come and just talk about the intersection of, of their life and how Christianity informs it. Um, it's a, a pleasure to be able to offer these uh, services or this series to the community, and I'm delighted all of you uh, took time to come out tonight to be part of it. Um, I will have other thank yous uh, later after we hear from our speaker, and I will tell you as well that after his talk, there will be an opportunity for some open mic Q&A, so be thinking about things you may want to ask him. Uh, as I mentioned, over the 16 years of the series, we've had a handful of professionally, uh, professional athletes. Actually, our speaker tonight is the second professional golfer. Uh, Hillary Lunky came years ago. Uh, we did a Q&A with her. Uh, but Tom, of course, is a Minnesota native. Uh, many of you may know his story. He uh, coached for a little bit at the U of M. I don't know if he's going to talk about this tonight or not, and then decided that coaching golf at, at the university and renting skis during the winter was not quite what he was called to do, so he decided to chase his dream and um, made good on it in lots of ways. And in addition to being a very talented golfer, of course, he's a wonderful human being who's done a lot of good for the world. Um, I do always ask our speakers uh, if there's something that's a little atypical or off the beaten path that you might not know about them. Uh, Tom had a little difficulty thinking of something, but in the end he decided <laughs> to tell me a story. I'm laughing because it involves his brother Jim, who's a dear friend. Um, Jim will give you a, a equal time a little later, okay? <laughs> but Jim's also a very talented uh, amateur golfer. And, and what Tom said is that the last time they played competitively was in 1967 in Grand Rapids. That was the last time that Jim beat him, and he has not beat him since. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. Jim, would you agree? No? Yeah, uh, uh, okay. Anyway, we are delighted to be able to present tonight Tom Lehman. Will you help me join him? Well, thank you. No, I think Jim was that right. 1967, the, the five-hole championship. So, what? Okay, okay. 1968. <laughs> oh my! Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, you know, Tim, for inviting me, and and to Jim for for helping me to get here, and uh, actually, I think encouraging me to come and do this. It's such a pleasure to to see everyone here tonight. Um, I'm looking at this brochure, and it says, Faith in Golf, Lessons from the Back Nine. Okay, I'm on the Champions Tour now, and it's like, this, this is very applicable to me, lessons, 
from the back nine, um, just as a, an FYI, people have asked me over the years, like, what, what's the difference between the Champions Tour and the PGA Tour? And, you know, well, aside from the age, you know, which is the obvious one, um, I said, I'll tell you the difference. So my very first year on the, on the Champions Tour, I was 50, and we're playing in Tampa, and uh, we got to the 17th hole and, and walked off the 17th green, and there's about a 300-yard walk between the 17th green and the 18th tee. And so my caddy and I walk off the green, and we're on our way to the 18th, and this, this young woman kind of falls in alongside of us. I mean, she, I'm going to guess she was probably in her early to mid-20s and uh, attractive, and she started kind of chit-chatting with me on the way to the tee. And, and uh, you know, she was kind of pushing this conversation forward pretty quickly, and, you know, I was getting a little uncomfortable looking at my caddy. I'm like, you know, and she finally comes with the question, are you married? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am married. I'm very happily married to a, a great woman, Melissa, and, and I have four great kids. She says, oh, darn. I wanted you to beat my mom. <laughs> that's an absolute true story. Um, so that's the difference, you know. Um, um, but like I said, I, I have an incredible wife, Melissa. I met her uh, at uh, Pebble Beach in 1984 when I was playing in the Bing Crosby tournament, a blind date set up by Lauren Roberts and his wife, Kim, and we have four kids, uh, Rachel, who's 28, Holly, 26, uh, Thomas, who's 24, and uh, Sean, who's 16. He's a sophomore in high school, so that's uh, very blessed to have a great family. Um, the last time that I was he here in the Minneapolis that had any real significance, we come here and spend the summers here, and we have a great time in Alexandria, but the last really big, you know, significant event that I was at uh, previous to this one was the Ryder Cup. 2016, was anybody at the Ryder Cup? Yeah, there's a few folks, yeah. So, you know, to me, match play is, is, is great. Match play is phenomenal. Ryder Cup is sensational. There's the pressure and the nationalism and the nerves and, you know, and so, you know, you, know, you play singles matches and you play best ball matches and you play alternate shot matches. And, and so I do have one really good alternate shot story for you. Um, however, it doesn't happen to do with the Ryder Cup. It just happens to be a format in the Ryder Cup. So I was playing with my wife in an alternate shot golf tournament. And if you don't know what alternate shot is, it's, it's like it sounds, you just take turns. And so if I teed off on the first hole, then she would hit the second shot, and then I hit the third shot, and then hers the fourth. You alternate until the ball's in the hole. And then whoever teed off on the first hole, the other person tees off on the second, and you alternate. So it's, you just alternate shots. So my wife is, is, a, is a very, very, very poor golfer. Um, <laughs> and with the emphasis on very. Um, <laughs> And so I said, I'll take the pressure off on the first hole and I'll hit the tee shot. You know, it's a cl club tournament. You know, it's like a couple's thing. You know, so you're playing with all your buddies, but you still want to win, right? So <laughs> we get in the first tee and I just, down the middle, kind of a typical drive for me, put it out there in a good spot and she gets up and she just kind of skittles it off to the right into the edge of the desert. We live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And so she's just in the edge of the desert, but not too far from the green. And I get in the little bush there, and I kind of in between, and I kind of chop this ball out, and it goes onto the green about 15 feet from the hole. And so now she's got a 15-foot putt for par. And she gets up in this 15-footer, and I line her up and just, bam, she knocks this thing tw 20 feet by, minimum. <laughs> so I line it up and plumb bob the whole thing and roll it, boom. 
into the hole for a five. So I walk into the next tee, and I'm kind of mumbling and grumbling, I think, and she heard me saying something under my breath. She said, what's your problem? And I said, well, hey, if, if, if we want to win this thing, we've got to do you know, better than bogeys on easy par fours. And she says, listen, you hit three shots. I only hit two, got it? <laughs> So all of, you, all of you ladies out there, I mean, and you husbands, I mean, how many fights have I ever won in our marriage in 32 years? Probably zero with somebody who's that sharp and that quick. Uh, you know, in golf, it's, um, it's you know, obviously the life of a golfer is, is fun, and there's times when you get to be a part of things which are great, um, you know, big events, you know, really high-pressure moments. You know, but there's been so many great players over the year. There's been so many people from the Ben Hogan's and the Walter Hagen's to the Trevino's and the Palmer's and the Nicholas's and the players and now the Tiger Woods's. By the way, how about Tiger Woods? <laughs> Amazing. He, um, he's a much more humble guy today than he was in the past, and it's fun seeing him progress as both a person and now a player again, so I'm really happy for him. But, it's, but anyway, when it comes to golf, you know, there's not many things that you can do that have never been done before. Um, so, like, as an example, like, there was a time when I was in the final group uh, the, uh, in the U.S. Open four years in a row, and it, it had been done once before, and Bobby Jones had done it. So, you know, good company. Um, of course, he won two, and I won zero, so I kind of <laughs> left me behind. Um, I was the PGA Tour, the Web.com Tour, and the Champions Tour Player of the Year, and that actually has never been done before, you know, so I'm the first person who's done that, but it's only because... I was so bad to start, you know, that I got to play on that, that tour, and now I'm really old, I get to play on that tour, and not everybody's had that chance, so, so. But there is one thing that I've done which I think has never been done before in golf. All right, it's really a big deal, too. And it happened at the US Open at Bethpage. Uh, at Bethpage in New York, which, uh, as you all can imagine, the New York crowds are great, they're tough, but they're fair. I mean, we, my wife and kids and I went to New York City one time for a week off a vacation, and we stayed in this little hotel right by Central Park. And at the time, my boys were fairly small, and my girls actually played softball, which you know is unheard of thinking back. I can't even imagine them playing softball. So we took our gloves and our bat, and we went into Central Park to the base, baseball field, and we had a, a family softball game, or baseball game, whatever it was. Okay, and these New York fans, a bunch of them actually came and sat in the bleachers and started watching <laughs> and cheering for us. Come on, Missy, hit that ball. Come on, run. <laughs> Take the third, 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 get him at the... I mean, you get it. Okay, so New York fans are interesting. All right, so at Bethpage on the fourth hole, it's a par four, you tee off up on a hill, and the fairway runs like this to the side diagonal with a big, huge bunker along the right. And it's a real long hole, so if you can kind of cut off the bunker, take it way over the right side of the bunker and, and really hit one hard, you can really shorten the hole and it probably hit maybe a nine iron or an eight iron instead of going straight and hitting a four or five iron. And so this particular day, third round, I'm playing well. I decide I'm going to just take it over the whole bunker. And I aim down the, over the right edge of the bunker, and I just bomb this thing, just rip it, and just crush it. But I just kind of hang it to the right just a little bit. Just, oh, just, it's probably going to catch the rough, you know, just like. And the rough is thick, you know. It's going to be, I just hack it out and hit a sand wedge for a third shot. It's probably going to be a bogey, maybe. And Anyway, so I'm, you know, 
walk down the tee, down the hill, go marching past the bunker. I'm looking up ahead where my ball should be. The marshal, there should be a marshal there telling you the ball's here, but I'm looking up ahead, there's no marshal up there. I'm looking like, where, where'd that ball go? And the New Yorker's like, hey, hey pal, it's behind you, it's behind you. And I turn around and, and the, if you can imagine the bunker, the, I'm going that way, the bunker face goes up like this, and then the hill on the back goes way down like that, and my ball is halfway up the hill underneath the grass. And so I'm thinking like, how the heck did that ball get there? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm hitting it this way, and the ball is like this. Hello? Yeah? That's correct. It hit somebody. Anyway, it did. The ball hit somebody in the edge of, by the ropes in the shin. So he's watching like this. The ball you know, hits him, boom, goes backwards up the slope on the backside of the bunker. So now I'm in the grass this high, kind of hanging over the ball. You know, and I've got to just get in there really, you know, steep and, you know, and just chop it. And I, and I, I get over the, you know, sometimes if you play golf, you, you have these lies and you know, I've, I've got to swing so hard at this ball just to hit it 30 yards. It's just going to be a great shot just to get it back to the fairway. And so I look over at the guy and I go, is your shin okay? He's got a big welt. And he goes, yeah, it's fine. I go, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, you did me a dirty there. I, I don't appreciate that. <laughs> Anyway, so thanks for nothing, but he's, I had no, you know, everybody laughs. So I get over this, and as I'm kind of getting over this thing, you know, I'm kind of aiming this way, the crowd's over here. Um, they start to back away. They start, <laughs> they start to back away. So I'm like, what are you backing away for? You know, they go, and the guy goes, oh, because you're probably going to shank it. <laughs> so I look at, no, no, I, I don't shank ever. I haven't shanked a ball in 20 years. You know, you, you don't sweat it. So they all move back in. So I get over this thing and I take this big swing and I'm just trying to hit it 30 yards that way, right to the wall over there and I swing as hard as I can, just drop the club right on top of the ball and what do I do? I shanked it. And it hit the same guy in the chest. Yep. So I think that, that has never been done for where a player has hit the same guy twice on one hole. Um, sometimes in golf you get these honors that come along your way and you know we're talking about the Ryder Cup. Uh, the Ryder Cup is a huge deal and, and I was actually really fortunate to be the captain uh, in 2006. Is that right? Jimbo? All right, thank you. He, he's my brother and my agent so I got to you know run these things by him. Um, so 2006 I was the captain and as part of being the captain they have a big media day in New York, and you go to New York, and you do all this media training so you don't you know, step on your foot and say something stupid over the next couple of years, and because and, uh, you're gonna be in the media so much. And, and, uh, you know, and then at the end of the night, you go to Yankee Stadium and you get to throw out the first pitch. But I need to regress just a little bit, just a little bit, because I'm still I'm kind of going back to this thing about being on the back nine here. And you know, there was a time in my life when I was actually on the front nine, and I actually had hair, and I was, had blonde hair, and believe it or not, you know, um, I'm not trying to you gotta just listen and go with it, okay? Every so often, people would say, you know, when you smile just that way, or when you look just that way, you look like that actor, Kevin Costner. <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs> appreciate that, appreciate that. And, you know, and it happened fairly regularly. With somebody, you know, when you just, just kind of look that way or smile that way, whatever, you look like that Costner guy. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, huh. I wonder if Kevin Costner ever hears a, hey, you look like that golfer Tom Lane. <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know. It'd be kind of nice to find out, but I don't know. Anyway, so getting back to the Ryder Cup thing, and so now I'm in Yankee Stadium at the end of a long day of, of media training, and, and I'm throwing out the first pitch, and I walk out to the mound, and Mike Messina's pitching, and he gives me the ball and says, don't bounce it. Whatever you do, don't bounce it. They'll boo. All right? You know, so I, so I wind up, and I throw this pitch as hard as I can, and I throw it 10 feet over the catcher's head. All the way to the fence. And so they, they laughed. They didn't boo, but they did laugh, but, but they didn't boo. Okay, so now I'm kind of embarrassed, and I'm walking out the field towards the Yankee dugout, and who's sitting in the front row? Kevin Costner is in the front row. He's in the front row. And as I'm walking towards the dugout, he stands up, and he points at me, and he says, I don't look like you! So he heard it. He heard the same thing. He didn't like it very much. <laughs> oh, my. It's true. True story. Oh, my. You know, um, I guess we're here tonight to talk a little bit about, you know, life and faith and how they kind of intersect. And, and as I was thinking about, you know, what I was going to talk about, and, and specifically, the thing that kind of kept on coming back to me was the fact that God has always given to me what I need when I need it. And uh, not what you want. You know, a lot of times what you want is different than what you need, but, but God has always seemed to, to give me faithfully what I need. And, uh, you know, learning some lessons and, you know, through things. But uh, I'll just give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, at the British Open, 1996, I won. Uh, my dad was there, uh, some other close friends were there, so it was a really special week. And, you know, I was ranked second in the world at the time going into the British Open. Um, had just finished second at the U.S. Open, almost won the U.S. Open at Oakland Hills and, you know, came really close to winning. So it, my, my game was really good and uh, I was playing fantastic golf, uh, very confident. Uh, got to, to Royal Lytham and the course is very difficult, but it really plays to my strengths and so I felt pretty confident. And, uh, you know, because I was ranked second in the world, you know, all the top players were assigned um, a policeman to be like their escort. Uh, Tiger was only about, I think, maybe 18 at the time, and so he only had maybe a couple versus the, the dozens that he has now. But, you know, but everybody, all the t so Greg Norman had his escort, and Nick Faldo had a, had a policeman with him, maybe a couple. And so I had this guy named Kevin Boyles. And so um, when I think about the British Open and all the memories uh, that I have about that week, the one that stands out the most to me had to do with Kevin Boyles. And, uh, you know, everywhere I went, to the range, to the first tee, to the media center, to the car afterwards, I mean, to the locker room, I mean, he, he basically was by my side the whole time. So it was my caddy, Kevin Boyles, and me the whole week at Lytham and St. Anne's. And so he was kind of part of the team. And, and what I remember so specifically and clearly is on the 18th hole, um, I hit my second shot on the green, so I had a two-shot lead. I could, I could three-putt and still win the tournament. So the tournament was basically over. It was mine. You know, but at the British Open, when the, the final group hits their approach shot to 18, the crowd just races to the green, and, and it's from here to the back wall of people you've got to fight through to get to the green. I mean, they don't, they don't get out of your way. You, you've got to kind of fight your way through the crowd. So old Kevin, who was about 6'4", and a, really a big dude, kind of wrapped one arm around his back and grabbed me and just started swatting people out of the way, just, <laughs> you know, fighting his way until he finally broke through just short of the green and, and there's my ball and there's the green and the crowd is cheering and the scoreboard has my name on top and, 
And Kevin puts his arm around me and he says, Hi, Tom. We've been through a lot of shit together, but now you're on your own. (laughs) So that's the most vivid memory, but the most significant moment, the most significant moment of that tournament happened on the 14th hole, the first round. And so when I tell you that God always would seemingly, faithfully, would give me what I need. So, you know, sometimes, as I'll talk about a little later, it's like you need something now in order to, to be better or do something properly later. So that you're learning a lesson now, you know, but you really messed up, you know, so that the next time around, in the future somewhere, you're better, you know, and you've learned the lesson. You know, this one, you know, it was more like, this is what I need right now. You know, God, I need something right now. And, uh, but I was too mad to be thinking about that because I started the tournament, I was four under through 12, going to the 13th hole, and the 13th hole is the easiest hole in the course, by far. It's a five iron off the tee and a sand wedge, and it's, it's, the, it's the one of the easiest birdie holes on the course, and I hit my five iron to the right into a bunker, tried to reach the green and hit it into the next bunker, tried to reach the green, hit it into the next bunker, then finally got it on the green, two putted for a double. So I go from four under, to two under, and now I've got the toughest stretch of holes in the course. The last five holes are really, really difficult, and I am so angry I could bite the head off and nail me. I could take my driver and snap it. I could break every club in my bag. I was so mad. And my caddy, um, he's a guy. He came for Johnny Miller for 15 years, by the way, so he's really experienced. But uh, he told me way back when he first started camp, he said, my whole goal, my whole job is to make you look good. That's my job. If I make you look good, we're going to do really good. We're going to do really well. And so he knows that I'm really angry, and, and, and I'm at the point, you know, where the, the ground could go sideways in a hurry, you know. And so he was always had the knack for saying the right thing at the right time. And so I just crushed this drive down the middle, and I hit this six iron in there about eight feet, and I'm still steaming. And, you know, I throw him the ball across the green to, to clean the ball off, and, and he kind of slowly walks over, and he's kind of washing the ball, and he kind of holds it to me to take away, and then I try to take it away, he hangs onto it, he won't give it back. <laughs> he says, uh, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. I'm caddying for the best player in the field this week. Don't forget it. And then he let the ball go, and he walked away. Okay, so I made the putt for birdie, then I buried the next hole, ended up shooting 67. You know, but, but, but here's, here's the thing, is that words matter. Words, I mean, this is the lesson I learned that day. Words really, really matter. We have the ability to build somebody up and to make them feel good about themselves, to encourage them, to inspire them, to give them courage, or we have the ability to tear them down and make them feel weak, unwanted, unloved, unforgiven. You know, so he, he kind of taught me a lesson that day because God gave me what I needed right at that moment in time which was encouragement to get me you know, focused back on the task at hand. You know, so that was a big lesson that I learned because God gave me something that I needed when I really needed I needed the right word. So as I have gone through life, I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that moment where Andrew had the right words for me. And so I've tried, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, uh, to have the right words for others. I remember when I was a Ryder Cup captain at... Uh, at uh, Ireland, Tiger was really struggling. Uh, he played poorly the first day, um, just played awful. He and Furyk lost two matches. 
And then on the next morning, he was playing poorly again, and, and uh, he hit a shot on this par three, the eighth hole, which was just a totally untiger-like shot, just a pull hook, eight iron buried in the bunker. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, um, what do you say to Tiger Woods when he's not playing well? I mean, do you know? I mean, give somebody help me here. I don't know what you say to a guy like that. <laughs> so I remember praying, like, you know, like, like Andrew did for me, you know, Lord, give me some words to say to this guy. Because, because he's obviously out of sorts and just something. And so I kind of got in walking beside him. And we walked about halfway to the green and he finally looks at me and he goes, what? He <laughs> <laughs> said, I'd like to remind you of something, Tiger. I'd like to remind you that you might be the best player who's ever played this game, just in case you forgot. And then I walked away. He goes, Thanks, Cap. Okay. All right. And, and, you know, and he started playing better. I mean, and I'm not sure if that helped or didn't help or what, but, but to me, words matter. So that's, that's a, you know, a lesson that I learned, you know, through something that I needed. You know, but uh, most of my life, though, it's been about things that I really needed to learn. I mean, and look, at I'm, the older I get, the realize more, more and more how imperfect I am. And, and you know, so th- there's some things that really matter. When I was in seventh grade, um, we were playing in a junior high golf tournament in Sauk Center, Minnesota. It was the junior high conference championship, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And I don't know what number guy I was playing. All I know is that, um, you know, on the, our eighth hole, a par five, I made like a nine or a 10 or something. I made some really high score. And the guy who was scoring for me, you know, said to me like, um, was that an eight? I go, uh, yeah, yeah, it was an eight. So I must have made a nine. I, I remember cutting it by a shot. It was a nine. I mean, it was an eight. Yeah, yeah, that, that was an eight. Okay. So he writes eight down, you know, and so my, all my, and I'm playing pretty well, you know, so this eight was a blow to the score, but I was still playing pretty well, so I was hanging in there. And so we get to the next hole, and, and for other reason, we're the last group on the course, and so the teams are around the green, and I'm on this par five and, and three with about a 12-footer for a birdie, and they say, if you two-putt, our team wins. Really. Because I was debating the whole way up the fairway of kind of correcting my score. But now this guy already told the coach, you know, that what I was shooting. And said, so they all knew that I two-putt to win. So now, now I'm stuck. I'm, I'm, I can't get out of this one. You know, I've, I've got to just kind of go with it. So I two-putt, and the team wins uh, by a shot. And I went home that night. And, you know, you talk about a, I mean, how old are you in seventh grade? 12 or 13? What are you? Are you... You're 14, what are you, eighth grade? Yeah, yeah so I'm, you're a 13 year old. Went home that night and I mean, I was the most miserable kid in the history of the world. Look in the mirror and knowing that I cheated. Oh, I just felt so bad, you know, because I was raised going to church and everything and I, I knew right from wrong. Um, I certainly knew that, that cheating and lying is not correct. And, uh, and so I vowed, I'm, I'll, I'll never do that again. You know, I felt like God was, looking at me and just, you know. <laughs> I, I will, and so fast forward, fast forward to Greensboro. I forget the year. It might have been 2002 or something. And I had a one-shot lead going into the last round at Greensboro on the PGA Tour and um, made a really good par in the first hole, nearly made a birdie. The second hole, I knocked it on in two. Had about a 30-footer for eagle, and I rolled it up right in the center, uphill, left stop about that far short, dead center for eagle, so I had a tap-in birdie. 
And I walked up to tap it in, and I took the putter back, and right as I started coming through, the ball just started to roll a little bit. You know, but I was already into my downstroke, and so, you know, I kind of actually jumped back. It's like, that ball moved. And partners go, well, no, no, that didn't move. I go, yeah, it, it, it definitely moved. And they go, no, no, we were watching. We didn't see it. I go, I, I, I'm certain it moved. And so we, they called the rules guy who came over, and then he called CBS to look on the, the cameras to see if they could see it on the camera. And, and to make a long story short, you know, they said, well, nobody could see it move. I go, well, look at it. And I'm thinking to myself, I remember seventh grade. <laughs> All right? And so I ended up saying, look, I, I'm certain that ball, it was, it was steady, and right as it, before I st- hit it, I, it just rolled forward a little bit. It was moving when I hit it. He goes, well, that's really a bummer because not only is it a shot, you know, because the ball moved, it's another shot for hitting a moving ball. You know, that's a two-shot penalty, you know. So it cost me two shots, I lost by one. You know, all because of seventh grade. You know, but, <laughs> but, but the point is this, is that God needed to teach me, you know, that, that honesty and truthfulness and integrity are everything. They're everything. And, and we all know those who have it, and we know those who don't. You know, so I needed to learn a really tough lesson uh, when I was in seventh grade in order to do the right thing when I was 35 or, or 40 or however old I was. So, you know, it was a really important lesson that I received through golf. Uh, and uh, it certainly has served me well, I can promise you. I've never had to look in the mirror since then and, and kind of despise what I see. Another, another big deal, really big deal. Um, I, on the Hogan Tour, on the Hogan Tour, um, the first year there's a Hogan Tour, which is now the web.com. Um, I was an alternate on the tour. I, I wasn't a full member of the tour. And so as because I was an alternate member, you know, I didn't have a, tr- a caddy that I traveled with. So I got into this tournament in the Wichita, all right, and uh, I had no caddy. And so I went to the pro shop and I said, I just got in as an alternate. Are there any caddies around? They said, well, no, but we can find you one. Well, they found me a guy who was a wrestler. Okay, the guy didn't play golf at all. He's a wrestler, so he became my caddy for the week. All right, so this wrestler and I went out. We played on, you know, this Hogan Tour event, and it's you know they're a big deal because if you win, you know, a lot of good things come with that. It's part of the, it's now the web.com, so that you can you know that there's good things that happen for winning. And so me and the wrestler went out and competed, and you know what? I won. I won the tournament. Okay, made twenty thousand dollars. You know, we had we were like six thousand dollars in debt. My wife and I and my daughter Rachel were traveling in, the, in a, a Volvo with no air conditioning. And, uh, you know, so I made this $20,000 and they're like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It's like, this is the biggest check of my life. This will kind of get us through the rest of the year. I mean, all these great things financially. Then I realized, you know, I got to pay my caddy. And typically when you win, you pay your caddy 10% as a bonus of what you win. That's kind of like the unwritten rule. You give your caddy 10% of the, of the, of the whatever you want. So I think, okay, 10% of... 20 grand is 2,000, you know, I don't really feel like paying this wrestler 2,000 bucks. You know, he didn't read a putt, he didn't, you know, he didn't do all the stuff a normal caddy does, but yet he was my caddy, he was my teammate. And so talking to my wife, what do you think, do I pay him the 2,000 or pay him 100 bucks a day, what do you think? And she says, well, I think you gotta do what you think is right. And so I started thinking, okay, well, what's right? You know, and you know, I, I, I definitely, try to get God's input on stuff like that, and it's like, hey, you know what? There's no written rule that says the guy's gotta be a professional caddy or even a caddy at all. He's part of your team, you ought to pay him the 10%. So I wrote him a check for 2,000 bucks. A little bit tough, 
little bit tough, um, but I did, and, and, uh, and then didn't think twice about it, you know, and we went our, on our merry way. Well, the kid was real quiet, didn't tell me much about himself, but I got a letter from him about two months later. The letter kind of told me about his upbringing, his mom, uh, you know, no dad around, he abandoned the family, mom working three jobs, he and his brothers went crazy, you know, alcohol and drugs and girls and, you know, just, they were just, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old messes. Uh, life was going away in the wrong direction and the wrestling coach got a hold of him. He was also the head of the FCA in his high school and he got him involved with wrestling and then got him involved with FCA and before you know it, this kid's got his life straightened out and, and uh, he is so on fire for God and he's so on fire for wrestling and, and, uh, and but he really wants to go to a Bible school because he wants to be a minister. You know, but the problem is nobody in his family had any money. The tuition was 2,000 bucks, nobody had it until, until he got the check. I always get emotional, always. You know, so <clears throat> to me, the lesson that I needed to learn was this, is that God has a way bigger picture. You know, he, he sees things way differently than we do. You know, so I'm thinking, this is all about me. This, this win is all about me. I mean, I, I need the money. I need that exemption into the next term, and I need next year's being fully exempt on the Hogan tour. You know, I need to be able to pay off that credit card bill. I need to take care of my wife and my kid. This is all about me. And I realized, it's like, you know what? You're wrong. Part of it's about me, you know, but a big part is about him, you know. And so to me, that, that story really um, helped change my perspective, you know, on a lot of things. You know, it kind of gave me this, because I wasn't successful yet. You know, I, I was still struggling. You know, so I think without this, uh, this better perspective on things, that it would have been way more difficult to get on the PGA Tour where the real success happened without understanding that God has a way bigger picture, you know, that it's not all about me, you know. So from that day forward, I have worked hard trying to have a perspective as, you know, this, that, you know, it's about other people, you know, putting other people first. And, you know, one thing I would say is that God hates sin so much because innocent people suffer. You know, we do things that are wrong and the people that are totally out of the picture are the ones who pay the penalty many times. So, so doing the right thing uh, is really important because we want to be a blessing. You know, another, I got two more stories to tell and I'll be finished, but um, they're both pretty important. The mini tours, that's where I played. I played most of my 20s and 30s on the mini tours and all over the world. And, and uh, it kind of goes along with the, with the same story, but uh, the tour school, this, you know, I had all of the talent that I needed, you know, and I, I just didn't have the trust. I didn't believe in myself. You know, so all these tournaments that I played you know, were all about trying to find a way to believe in, in who I was as a golfer. And, and I feel like the Lord kept on saying, look, I created you, you know, I gave you the talent, just believe it, just trust it. And I had a hard time. And so at this particular tour school, uh, 1990, um, I got off to a really bad start in the tournament. And there's a, it's a six round event and there's a four round cut. And I got to the 72nd hole and I had to make a birdie just to make the four round cut. And that was important because that was the year leading up you know, you know, to my, well, long story, I'll get back to that. I had to make a birdie on the 72nd hole, okay? And so all the pressure in the world were riding on this one hole, and I, if I didn't make this birdie, I was kind of out of luck for the future. If I made the cut, it, made, it was going to make a big difference. And so I was so nervous. I was so nervous, and there's water right, pin was back right, and I'm a drawer of the golf ball, and the only really way to get it easily close is to cut it. And, and so my caddy said, look, you just got to trust it. 
Look at, I've seen you hit that shot over and over. You're in the middle of fairway, you got 150 to the pin, you just get that little cut shot. And you, I've seen you do it over and over on the practice range. You know, if you're ever gonna trust it, if you're ever gonna believe in yourself, now is the time to do it. So I stood up, aimed left, tried to hit this little cut shot, and I just hit this perfect shot. Perfect shot. Very few perfect shots that I can remember. But the ball started just a hair left of the flag, just maybe moved to the right a foot. I mean, it's almost dead straight. Never left the flag, just to about a foot short of the hole for a tap-in birdie to make the cut. And it's like that one shot, that one shot, because I, I had hit, I had a lot of chances up to that point to learn that, and I failed. Hit a lot of really bad shots in big situations. Finally, this shot was perfect, and there was just something happened inside that just changed me as a golfer. I went from being a golfer who didn't believe and didn't think I, had, I could handle the pressure to a golfer who knew I could handle the pressure. I just handled the most pressure I've ever had in my life, and I hit a perfect shot. So now I got two more rounds to go. So I'm thinking, okay, God just gave me this perfect shot you know, to make the cut, so now I've just got to play the next two rounds about five under, and I'll get my PGA Tour card. This is 1990, you know, I, I'm dead broke, just, you know, I mean, that's my dream, right? So play the next round, I shoot three under. Okay, I'm halfway there. Come to the 108th hole of the tournament. The last hole of the tournament, I have to make a birdie to get my PGA Tour card. It's a long par four, hit a great tee shot, a beautiful five iron, about 15 feet right of the hole. The guy I'm playing with is about three feet just outside of me on the exact same line. I'm like, oh, this, this is perfect. I can watch his putt. He hits his putt up on the right side. It kind of snaps at the end and, and misses low, just off the left edge. And so I play it just a little bit higher. And so you can imagine I'm thinking, look, at I this made this big comeback from like nine over to get just to make the cut and hit this perfect shot and now I'm full of confidence and like this is, this is meant to be, this is, I mean, I, this is just a tap-in. There's no way this putt can't go in the hole. Hit this putt just a little bit higher, perfect line, perfect speed, up, starts to break, starts to snap, gets to the hole, straightens out, hits the top lip, does a 360, doesn't go in. Miss. <clears throat> Missed my card again. Walked off the green, sobbing. It's the only time I've ever cried at a golf tournament was after that putt didn't go in. Oh, here we go again, you know, another missed tour school. And, you know, and uh, at that point in time, I'm thinking, like, you know, why? You know, why, 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 why? And so this whole thing about looking at things from a bigger picture. Well, the why was, because I didn't get my card, I was now fully exempt on the Hogan Tour. And I went the next year in the Hogan Tour, and I won three tournaments, and I... All this newfound confidence, I just translated right into just dominating the Hogan Tour. And which the confidence, which was this, at this level, went to this level up here. And then from that year, I went onto the PGA Tour and finished 24th my first year, made the Tour Championship, and never looked back. I had set five goals for myself uh, in 1992 when I got on tour, which, you know, this is coming from a guy who played the mini tours his whole life, basically, and he had very little success. I want to win a tournament. Um, I want to win a major championship. I want to be on the Ryder Cup team. I want to be the PGA Tour Player of the Year, and I want to be the number one player in the world. And, you know, if I were to told my friends those goals, they would have been laughing. Like, yeah, really? You know, you can't even win the, the North Dakota Open. <laughs> you know, but within five years, I had accomplished all five of those goals. You know, and, and the reason is because that putt missed on the 108th hole. If that putt would have gone in, I would have had to go battle and try, to, and try to maintain that confidence against the very best players in the world. And was I ready? Well, maybe. 
but, but maybe not. Instead, I got to go to the Hogan Tour, which is now the web.com, and, and play against those guys, which I was better than. And, and my confidence grew to the point where I became, kind of became, you know, almost unstoppably successful. You know, so, so again, it, it just the idea that, that God sees our lives in a different way than we do, and he knows what's better than us. So I kind of learned never to second guess. You know, whatever happens, there's, there's got to be a reason for it. You know, so, so trust God for it. But here's the most important story of all. Okay? <clears throat> this story is a, um, the biggest lesson that I've had to learn in my life. And it, it's affected me in so many ways. So in the Ryder Cup in 1999, we played at Brookline. Uh, who watched that, that Ryder Cup? I'm sure many of you did. But. So the US team was fantastic. We had a great team. And, and the European team wasn't all that strong. And we were just getting pummeled through two days. We were down four points, down four points. And uh, you know, no team had ever come back from four, four points down to win in a Ryder Cup. And here the US team was four points behind with this great team. And, and uh, we had to run the tables on Sunday. And so I was up first. I was the first guy off the tee on Sunday morning. And I was playing Lee Westwood. And, and I beat him four or three and two. And then Hal Sutton was behind me. And he beat Darren Clark four and three. And, David Duvall pounded somebody, and Phil pounded somebody, and Tiger pounded. Before you know it, we've won like the first six matches. <clears throat> we end up getting to the point where it looks like, hey, we have a really good chance to win, but we, Justin Leonard, he has to kind of come through for us. You know, and he was way down in his match, and he started coming back against Olafable. And he ended up coming to the 17th hole, and he made this 50-foot bomb up over a ridge to take a one-up lead, and it looks like... Um, um, unless Olafable makes his putt on top of him, we're going to win the Ryder Cup. And so, you know, Justin's putt goes in. We all go crazy. We run across the green. We're mobbing him, you know, not really realizing that Olafable still can, can tie the hole if he makes his putt, and, and he doesn't, you know, so we do win. But the, after the, the fact, in the media center, the European team was hypercritical of the U.S. team, and the, and the British media was super critical of the US team, and they singled me out as like the worst of the worst. You know, and they said, quote unquote, this guy calls himself a man of God. How could he act like such an idiot, basically? You know, so they kind of centered a lot of their, their irritation on me. And this guy named John Huggin, who was a writer over in Scotland, wrote this letter, or not, let me see, wrote this article, which, was so scathingly bad. It was just brutal. Uh, I thought he was being not just unfair, lying, untrue, but, but just ripped me, ripped me for being a hypocrite, ripped me for being this, just a terrible article. And uh, I mean, no one's ever written something that bad before. I've had some negative things, but, but this was like, think of the worst thing you can think of, that was kind of it. So I determined that I didn't deserve that. You know, I'm a, I'm a way nicer guy than that, and I'm a way better guy than that. I don't deserve that. So the next time I see John Huggin, I am going to give him a piece of my mind, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hold back. So a couple weeks later, I'm playing at the Dunhill Cup at St. Andrews, and, and who do I see across the way on the driving range? John Huggin. <laughs> Marched right over, got right in his face. Okay, and I pointed my finger at him, and I swore at him, and I ripped him a new one, and I went, I just berated this guy for about a minute. Okay, feeling like I had every right in the world to do it, because he was so unfair to me. Then I march away, 
Never think about it again. Not once. Not for a second. Didn't regret it. Didn't think about it. Didn't care. Well, now time goes forward. I become the Ryder Cup captain. So guess what happens? John Huggin writes article number two, <laughs> which makes number one look like something from the Boy Scouts. <laughs> because in this one, he verbatim writes exactly what I said to him on that range at St. Andrews. Okay, I've got to hold together. This is... So, I read this article, and now I have a different take on it. Because I read now my own words, what I've said to him. And I say to myself, I can't believe I said that to this guy. I mean, nobody deserves that. I don't care how nasty he was. And he was saying what an absolute hypocrite Tom Lehman is. I'm so sick and tired of these Christian athletes who think they're so high and mighty and so self-righteous and, you know, yada, 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 yada. Here's what he said to me, da, 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 da. You know, I hope this guy goes down in flames. I mean, and I read it and I said, you know what? Every bit of that is true. Okay, I, I, I need to get a hold of this guy. And so all he had there was his email address on the bottom of the article. No phone number. So I emailed him, hey John, and I wrote him this letter. <clears throat> and I explained to him like, uh, you know, I never, what I just told you, I never thought one thing about what, you, what I said to you. I thought you deserved it. And as I read your article, I realized how wrong I was and how nobody deserves that. And you say that I'm a hypocrite, and I am, for sure. I said, but I'm gonna tell you one thing though, which is true is that I know that, that I can be capable of doing that, what I did to you. I know that I've got a temper, and I know I can do some bad things when I'm mad, and, and, I, and I know how crummy of a person I can be. And, and it's because I know that that I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I know what I can do, and I need to be forgiven because I know that I'm far, far less than perfect. So this whole idea about being a hypocrite, you're right, but. but in some weird way, I hope you understand that's why I am a Christian, because I think we all need forgiveness. I said, but right now, what I really want is forgiveness from you. And you have no, right, no reason to forgive me, you know, but I was so wrong. I treated you so badly. I feel so awful about it. So if you could see in your heart to forgive me, I just want to say I'm sorry. And so he calls me. I put my phone number in the email. He called me. I absolutely forgive you. No problem. I understand. When you come to Scotland next year, let's get together and have a beer and we'll talk about it. All right, so to me, it's like, oh, wow. You know, first of all, what a burden off my shoulders. You know, to have this guy forgive you for doing something so stupid. <clears throat> you know, but, but to me, the reason why it's so important is because this idea of forgiveness is such a big deal. It's such a big deal, and we're, we all need it. And I know that, you know, we need God to forgive us, obviously, for the things that we do that are wrong, and I think we all try to be good people, but, you know, forgiveness from God is a big, big deal, and it, and it takes away the guilt. But forgiveness between each other, you know, person to person. You know, somebody told me this really cool phrase. It says, unforgiveness is like drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, <laughs> 
That's true. The person in bondage is the person who doesn't forgive. You know, so, so you know, forgiveness from God, forgiveness from other people, and forgiving other people. But there's a third thing. And there's a third thing which I think is really important is forgiving ourselves. You know, because I know that there was a long time in my life where I just, I mean, I would hold on to every imperfection. You know, I was a perfectionist, you know, needed to get good grades and be good at golf. And, you know, so being really good and trying to be, get approval, you know, was a big deal. And so every, every failure was, was, it was a thing where I would carry that guilt forever. You know, so I think, I think probably the most significant day of my life uh, was a day where I remember just, you know, I was praying, you know, about just, hey, I'm just, you know, I just, whatever I was praying about, I don't know. I don't remember. And it's like this, this inside my head, this voice just kind of said to me, I said, look at Tom. You know, I love you. I sent my son to this world to die on a cross for everyone, including you. My son died for you. You know, and so I, I, I've forgiven you. So, so if I can forgive you, why can't you forgive yourself? And like, what a freeing moment that was. You know, so this whole thing with John Huggin kind of reinforced to me this idea of, of how important the idea of forgiveness is and how uh, living in, in a, a state of bitterness comes directly from being in a state of unforgiveness. So, so my challenge to you tonight, you know, as I leave and finish up, is, is, is um, of course, we all have things we need to learn, but, but, but the biggest thing is, is take that grace and that mercy that God has given us and the forgiveness he's given us and, and, and let that flow through us to those around us and let that flow th- through us into ourselves also. So uh, let's be forgiving people. Um, that's really kind of all I've, I have to say. I could probably go on, I suppose, but um, I just want you to know that I appreciate the ability to talk to you tonight to kind of share a little bit about my story, about my life, how golf has been such a big part of it, but how God has used golf in such a mighty way to, to hopefully make me better than I was. So um, thank you very much. Are we taking questions now? Or? I'm going to say a couple things. You can stay up here. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Just thank you, Tom. I'm I'm struck by the fact that I grew up being a big fan of yours, and how it's so cool to have you here. So <laughs> thanks for coming. <laughs> Truly, um, I mentioned this is the last event of the season. So if you will uh, permit me, I'm going to say a few announcements here while Tom has a chance to rest his throat. After that, again, there will be a chance for some questions and answers. Um, So one is uh, we're in the process now of framing up next year's series. Uh, So uh, we don't have the first event in the fall. We're we're very close to getting it scheduled. But if you want to get updates about those events, uh, you can sign up to our email list or like us on Facebook, um, and we'll share news about that. We usually announce the, uh, the full series later in the summer, so if you sign up for those things, you'll get news about those proactively. Um, so do that if you would like. Um, these events, I've said this at every event since we started 16 years ago, they are not a budget item of this congregation. We 
Uh, we do them as a community service. They have to happen to be based here, but all of the costs of this series are borne by incredibly generous individuals and organizations um, who have caught sort of the spirit of what we're doing and are willing to invest in it. Um, they are all listed in your program tonight. At least I hope they all are. I hate it when we miss people. If we've missed you, I apologize. Uh, but if I could just say a few uh, thank yous. I'm not going to read all the names, obviously, but I want to thank Thrivent Financial. Um, they've been with us from the very beginning. So Jim and Brent, uh, thank you, wherever you all are. And Liz, nice to meet you tonight as well. Um, the uh, Ulrich Real Estate, Real Estate Group, Beth and Eddie, thank you very much for your ongoing support. Uh, Rapid Packaging, Phil and Mona, I don't believe are here tonight, but Phil and Mona and Mike, thank all of you. Productivity Inc., uh, Greg and Lisa, um, I, I don't think they're here, but thank you, Greg and Lisa, if you're listening virtually. Mastercraft, uh, Jeff and Patrice, wherever you are, thank you. Jeff, thank you for the joke you sent me today. Um, <laughs> Cressa, uh, again, been a wonderful partner. Jim and Ruth Ann, grateful to you very, very much. Thank you and thanks to everyone at Cressa. Honeybee Capital, uh, Catherine Collins is a former speaker actually um, who lives out on the East Coast, but she has decided she loves what we do and she continues to support us. Mally Design, uh, there at the bottom, uh, help us out with some print things, and then Anselm House has been a good partner. They're a Christian study center at the University of Minnesota, so thanks to both of those. Uh, the Mick and Sandy Lee Foundation, their logo is not there, but thanks to them. Also thanks to Jay and Jennifer Novak, uh, grateful to both of you. Uh, Tim and Janice Maudlin. Tim, thank you for your recent uh, joining us in our mission. I'm grateful to you and also grateful for your friendship. Um, so. We would not be able to be here tonight. We could not put these on without the generosity of all of these people. Uh, and there are many others who I'm not able to name who are listed here, who are present with us tonight. Will you join me in expressing our thanks? Um, I also, I've, I've thanked these guys, well usually it's just Jeff, but Jeff Elstad has been with us from the start. He's with him uh, tonight with his son Eli, who has also joined him for his intro and outro, so Jeff and Eli, thank you for your music. And then I do want to say a special thanks to uh, someone I teased a little bit at the beginning of the event, but Jim Lehman, where'd you go? Where are you? There you are. Jim, you have been a dear, dear friend for a long time. I don't get to see you nearly enough, but I am grateful to you for everything you've meant to me and my families as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You're a wonderful human being, even if you haven't beaten your brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and Mo, it's nice to see you tonight as well. I'm glad you guys could be with us. Um, final thing, I want to make this very, very clear. The, the Faith in Life series is, again, I said this already, but it is a community service. It is something we do freely and generously uh, because I believe that it's important to hear wonderful people like Tom talk about the intersection of faith and life. This is not a bait and switch, okay? Did you all hear that? <laughs> the series is not about making sure that we get more people to worship at St. Philip the Deacon. Did you hear that? All right, however, <laughs> We actually booked Tom a year ago. He agreed to do this sort of conceptually, and I've been dealing with his wonderful assistant, Joni. Please thank her, by mm -hmm. the way. Um, and uh, we, we didn't actually nail down a date until, I don't know, a couple months ago or something. And I said, well, you do know that's Holy Week, right? 
And Joni's like, yep. So the April 17th it is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's Holy Week, um, and that means that tomorrow night is Monday, Thursday, Friday is Good Friday, Saturday is what we call it the first light of Easter here, and Sunday morning is Easter Sunday. I hope each and every one of you have, have a loving, beautiful community of faith that you can go and worship on Sunday or on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. If you don't, all I want to say is that you are most welcome here, okay? And so in the program is a list of our service times. Join us if you'd like. If you have another congregation that you're already a member of, wonderful. God bless you. Okay, um, enough with the uh, chatting from me. Uh, if there are questions, and I hope we have a few. Oh, actually, so we'll go for 10, 15 minutes or so with questions. Related to Holy Week, I will tell you, we should, this should not be a problem. We're, we'll be out of here by about quarter after, 20 after at the latest. Um, one of the complicating things about having this event tonight is that our choir is going to be rehearsing in here at 8.30. Hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> along with a brass quintet and timpani. So if you want to hang out and listen to a rehearsal of some awesome music and get a preview of what you would hear on Sunday, you're welcome to. Uh, but I am going to do a hard stop at about 20 after, okay? Um, so anyway, question. if you have a question, if you wouldn't mind coming up to one of the mics, uh, that'll help everyone hear it, okay? Hey, Tom. Uh, thank you for your willingness to be so vulnerable in talking about your story. It's really refreshing. You talked about what matters and words that matter, and it was really struck a chord and you've played with some of the greatest golfers in the world. I would love to have a bad day like Tiger. <laughs> but as you reflect upon all the people that you've played with in the PGA, the Hogan, who are some of the people that you are most impressed with and who you feel are most respected? Great question. Yeah, I think the, um, I think number one, the top of the list is Byron Nelson. He's probably the, the, the one player, the one man that I respect more than any other. And it's, you know, he's, he's this combination of humble and confident. Uh, he's a superstar and he's a, a God, godly man and yet very competitive. And, and he, he was, always would be um, the kind of guy who would write you a note when you played well. Uh, so I think when I, if there's anybody that I really truly looked up to who said, I'd like to be like that guy, uh, it was Byron Nelson. I think in terms of golf, you know, who wouldn't want to be like Nicholas or, or Arnie or something? So that they were my heroes growing up. But, but I think as a human being, uh, Byron Nelson's at the top of the top. Yep. Hi, Mr. Lehman. My name is Bill. Uh, thanks so much for being here, and I also appreciate your vulnerability. Uh, my question has to do with mentors and coaches and uh, spiritual companions in your life. Um, but before I get to that, I just wanted to share that I came to know uh, about your father, Jim. Actually, before uh, you became well-known on the tour, um, in the early 80s, I had the amazing privilege of playing football for uh, St. Jo uh, John's and John hey. Gillardi, God rest his soul. Um, John uh, would refer to uh, players in our film sessions uh, who did their jobs extraordinarily well. And uh, I'm confident he mentioned your father, Jim, uh, many times. And uh, I came to learn afterwards that he was uh, All-American, two-time All-American, 1954, 1955, halfback at St. John's. Yep. Um, so, apart from uh, my father, uh, John is right up there at the top of the men who have really profoundly impacted me. Um, my question to you, uh, could you share any examples of significant mentors, coaches uh, who have helped shape your faith uh, and your life, and uh, who on tour uh, do you consider a, a real spiritual companion? 
Yeah, great question. Yeah, my, my dad, thank you for mentioning my dad, by the way. He was a, a, a great athlete. And, and uh, yeah, John Gallardi would always uh, talk with my dad and his, uh, to all his teams, and he would say what a great player he was, how fast he was, how, you know, and they would always say, well, how would he do today? I mean, how would he do today if you were playing today? He goes, well, he'd probably do pretty well. I mean, he'd probably score, you know, 10 or 11 touchdowns, but you know, he may be a step slower, but he'd still do pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but mentors are a big deal. Like, so my dad, you know, for my brother Jim and I and my brother Mike, I mean, our dad was the, the driving force uh, at home, you know, all through high school and college. And then once I kind of got into college where, you know, my, you know, the past college, you know, I started getting a couple of coaches uh, who really helped me with, with the golf. I had two coaches, Les Bolstead and then Jim Flick were the only two coaches I've ever had uh, all through the years. And, uh, you know, both of them amazing teachers, uh, Jim Flick for 23 years. Um, dear, dear man, became a very close friend, but, um, you know, they, they were, you know, really kind of helped steer me through the waters of golf. Um, a guy named Larry Moody, who was the chaplain of the PGA Tour, kind of became more of a, a spiritual mentor for me, and so I, he, to this day, he's a guy that I go to if there's a problem in my life or I need a, somebody to talk to, I, I talk to Larry, and it's really important to have a guy like that. I mean, there's a lot of issues that we all face, and it's good to have somebody you can be completely honest with without being judged. So it's a good deal. Great question. Yes. Hi, Tom. I eventually will be the butt of the story, but um, I want to tell folks here, before Tiger, there was Tom Lehman. And if you were a Minnesota guy, you didn't want to watch a golf tournament on Sunday unless you were in the hunt. No. <laughs> I, mean, I remember the four U.S. Opens, but how about the Masters? I can still see you on 13. Go for two, Tom. Make a birdie. Yeah. We, we loved you. Thank you. Well, I have, a, I have a son who's 30, and I told him about how great Tom Lehman was. So it was a PGA here a couple times ago, and so we decided to follow you. And I think on the first seven holes, you were inside 15 feet on all seven of them, and you missed the putt on all of them. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, I, so, so, so you came I, to so give me a putting lesson. My son, who was about 13 at the time, says to me, Dad, let's move on. He's breaking my heart. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, Jeff... You just figured out 90 minutes it took me a decade to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love, we love you, Tom. Thank so, you. I but, appreciate uh, that was a story. I, I'm still, I remind him of that. Yeah. But uh, we could not have, we could not, as fans, we could not have loved you more. Thank you very much. That's really kind. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, Tom, you've obviously developed quite a camaraderie with your players on the senior tour. Uh, we watch all the commercials on television. Uh, I'm just wondering, how much longer do you intend to play professional golf? Well, you know, I, 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 there was a time when, and my brother Jim will tell you, there I was a time when I was saying, I'm not even going to play the Champions Tour, you know, but obviously um, I didn't, didn't follow that rule very well. Um, I, I love to play golf. I think the thing, I, here's the thing I like best about golf, um, is that there's always something to look forward to. There's... There's always a tournament coming up. There's always a course you're going to play. There's always a big thing happening that you're looking forward to. And I think in life, having something to look forward to is a really big deal, a really big deal. I mean, to be able to get up in the morning knowing there's something ahead of you that's important that you're aiming at uh, really gives you a reason to, to, to work hard and to focus and to stay uh, energetic and enthusiastic. So um, I will quit playing golf. Uh, either when it becomes no fun and, and what I have to look forward to is doesn't thrill me anymore or when I'm just so lousy that I can't compete anymore. 
you know, so I'm still good enough to compete, still good enough to win, so I'll keep on playing, and, uh, and kind of like I said before, I think, you know, God has, he writes the script, not us. I think that when that time comes, I'll know it, and I'll look back and say, yeah, I can see, I can see how I'll develop, and I see where to go, and, and when that time comes, I'll quit. Thank you. Yes, sir. Tom, of all the different types of golf shots that you've had to hit through the years, what do you consider to be the toughest shot that you've ever had to make? And frankly, I don't want to hear hitting out of six inches of grass after hitting a guy in the leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, toughest shot to hit. Well, I think the hardest shot would be like a fairway bunker shot from about 60 yards or 70 yards, something that's um, not a full swing, it's too far for a blast. You know, it's hard to kind of catch it clean with a sand wedge. So I, I would say that um, if you gave me the, the worst possible shot to have to hit, it would be like in a fairway bunker from 70 yards over water. I'd be scared to death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the impact you may have had or Payne Stewart may have had on you? Uh, I read in the Payne Stewart... Uh, era yeah. that you were pretty close, as I recall, and the, the yeah, you know, I, impact you had on each other. Yeah, Payne, um, you know, I, I really, I didn't really know Payne very well at all until the last couple of years of his life. So, um, you know, my circle that I traveled in and played in was far different than his. I mean, he was a star right out of college, and I, I wasn't. I, would, I was on the mini tours for a long time. So by the time I got on the tour, he, there was a real core group of guys who were really tight, Azinger and Payne Stewart and you know, guys like that were really tight. You know, I was kind of on the outside looking in and had to kind of work my way into that group, you know, had to kind of earn their respect. Um, you know, and Payne was always kind of a brash, uh, jokester, confident, you know, you could call him arrogant for sure. Um, you know, up until that point in his time when he really realized, I think through you know, for who knows exactly all the things, but he, he started to kind of take his, the spiritual side of life way more important. And he still was fun, he still was, you know, confident, he was, still was all that, but he, he became way less arrogant and way more, I would say, humble. You know, the pride started disappearing, the humility started showing up, and at that point I got to know him a lot better. And, uh, you know, he definitely is a guy that you miss, but um, he's a, he was a combination of of saying, like a Phil Mickelson, saying really brash, off-the-chart stuff, and then this, and turning right around in, in a team meeting talking about how much he misses his father, he wished he could have been here, and start to cry. You know, so you know, he was this combination of, of the two, which is what I love so much about him, is, is that he was um, very, very real, a very real person. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for being here, Tom. As a native of Fergus Falls, it's always nice to see someone from the hated rival do what do well uh -huh, in life. There we go. Yeah. Um, two questions about the tour. One, what are your thoughts on the schedule changes this year with the players going back to March, the PGA to May? And secondly, how are things going at TPC Twin Cities getting ready for July? Uh -huh. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, th I think the players going back to March is great. I think it's a better course in March, and I think it sets up the rest of the season better. I think the PGA was always the, the afterthought of the majors, and that one moving up into that slot in May really helps that tournament a lot. Um, so I, and I think having them all done by the, the, min, the in middle of July is a good, good deal for the tour schedule. As terms now of the 3M and TPC Twin Cities, 
Like, you, you can't make a course long enough to protect, you know, length from those guys. So you have to try to make it tighter and, you know, but the greens are pretty wide and we did tighten it up and we did, you know, do a few things to try to make it more difficult, but I think you're going to see a birdie show out there, so. I, I was at the TPC last month in, uh, for the players, and I agree with you. I think it's a better course in, in March than it is in May. Yeah. And my son-in-law, who is head professional there, agrees. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, yeah, well, the reason I think it's better at Sawgrass in March is because they, they play on overseeded grass. You know, in, in May, they play, the Bermuda comes back in, it's always soft and kind of spongy and a little bit slower. The overseeded, you know, grass in March is firm and fast and the greens are lightning, it's better. Yes, sir. Tom, thanks for being here. Golf for many of us is a very brutal game from a psychological point of view, and you had some, some noteworthy disappointments along the way. I still don't know why that putt on 15 didn't go in. Yeah, me neither. Uh, yeah. But uh, how, how do you recover from that? What, what were your techniques for recovery from disappointment? Yeah. You know, to me, the, the, the only real disappointment is when you, when you kind of let yourself down by either not being prepared or you just kind of find a way to, to not really go for it. You know, there, I think we've all been through both. I mean, there's times when you go somewhere and you're just not quite prepared and so you play poorly and, and so you kick yourself, that's, that's my fault. There's other times where maybe you just, uh, you're a little nervous or whatever, so you kind of hold back a little bit and when it's all said and done, you go, man, I should, why, why don't you just go for it more? You know, in those times, I, I get really angry with myself, and so I try to work really hard at, at not leaving anything on the table. And um, so, so therefore, if, if I feel like if I really give it my best, and I've, I've, every shot I've been totally into it, totally committed, and, and gave it all I got, you know, I can walk away and be frustrated or disappointed, but, but still feel good about my performance. So I've always been really good at seeing the glass half full and taking the positives away and then learning from the mistakes, you know, but, uh, but the only times I ever really kicked myself were the preparation part or when I really knew, you know, Johnny Miller would say he choked. He choked and everybody's choked a little, you know, where he just, the pressure just kind of made it where you just, you just played too defensively or something. And, and those are the times that just killed me. And so I think, that, but that's how you learn. That's how you get over that because you're, you're sick and tired of that. You don't want to do that anymore and so you don't do it again. Yep, thank you. Let's do, um, yeah, let's do one more question, uh, and then just to, after your answer, if you all could not applaud wildly so I can come up and say a final thank you, and yeah. then you can <laughs> applaud wildly, okay. So I'm trying out for uh, my golf team, and I, just like you, like, I'm very, like, I find that I'm, like, not perfect at golf, and I was wondering, like, how do you stay in the game mentally? Like, if you have a couple bad shots, like, how do you, like, recover from that? That's a great question. First of all, I love your T-shirt. Everyone you. loves a brave girl. I, there's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, you know, um, it's, it's hard to overcome being disappointed. You know, sometimes um, you can get so down on yourself that, that you just simply can do nothing right. You know, so I, I try really hard to never ever get to that point. And so what I, what I tend to always do is when things are starting to go poorly, it's like hitting the reset button on your computer or something or on your, you know, where you're, you're just, you're just everything, all the junk in there disappears and you reset it back to the start. You know, so that's what I do. 
so if I say, I say you're playing in a nine hole match and you have a bad first hole and you have a bad second hole, it's like I hit the reset button. Okay, and now I've got seven holes left. Okay, all the crap that happened before is gone. It's, it's, it's been trashed. Okay, I'm starting over. So you know, over these next seven holes, I wanna, I'm gonna set these goals and do this, this, and this, and, and try to have a fresh attitude. Okay, so the worst thing you can do is let things just compound and compound and compound. So before you know it, you're trying so hard, but you have so much junk on you that you can't do anything. You know, so I try to, I try to always just get rid of the bad, okay, and then start over and refocus on what I want to do ahead of me. Okay, don't think about back there. Think about what I want to do over here. So that, that's how I do it. You know, and then I go back to the basics, just, you know, hit one shot at a time, try to do what I can do. But I think the idea of not carrying bad things with you is really important. You've got to find a way to let them go. Okay? All right, good luck. Uh, oh, one more? All right, okay. Okay, we'll do one more, and then see if you can follow the instructions a little better. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom, I didn't think I would mention this, but through a mutual friend, you were honored at the University of Minnesota a couple of years ago, and I had mentioned to you that um, you had come into town and were qualifying for the U.S. Open. And I happened to be your caddy that day, yeah. okay? Yeah. And um, we had a pretty good day. You ended up going on to the next stage. But I mention that because, um, Tom, my dad was my hero. My dad was my wrestling coach. I wrestled all through college. I, I was a college wrestling coach. Wow. I officiated college wrestling for 36 years. And now I'm in charge of all the college wrestling officials in the country. I work for the NCAA. So you have a great vibe with wrestlers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. oh, that's great. We love you. And being that the NCAA championships in 2020 will be at U.S. Bank Stadium. If you want to come, let me know. I'll get all right, you thank in. You, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, what was the name of that caddy? I don't know his name. No, no, at, oh. no, no. At the open, who had to open the sea of people for you? Oh, Kevin Boyles. Okay, so after I give a little gift to Tom, we're going to try to get him out there, where he will, I think, be happy to visit with yeah. all you and answer questions one on one. So if you all could part the sea <laughs> uh, as we do that. Uh, again, we're at the end of this year's season. I want to say two thank you. First of all, thank you, everyone here for coming and continuing to make this series such a vital, important part of our community. I'm grateful to each and every one of you. I'm glad you came out tonight. And Tom, I am so glad you were willing to join us tonight. And so we have a little memento of your time with us. This is a little piece of granite. Um, I hope it's not too heavy to carry back to Arizona that says, with thanks to Tom Lehman for bringing faith to life. We thank you, thank you so, so very, much. very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.